The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Well, good morning. It's so great to have you here. It's so great to have so many gifted members of our church serve. Thank you, Jonathan and the band for leading us to worship the Lord this morning. We continue in our study of Genesis, and we are coming to Genesis 5, and we're going to work all the way through 5, 6, 7, and half of 8. So now you know why you served so long in those classrooms with those kids. I am sorry. I'm trying to learn how to do these a little quicker, but... uh, Today we're going to look at Genesis 5, 1 through eight nineteen, and in these verses we see uh, what we can all feel and experience in our culture. We see the spread of, of death and darkness and depression and sin. It's, it's a very dark day in the, the stage of history, and really it's something that we can all experience in our own life and connect to uh, in our own life. What we're seeing in, in chapter 5... Let me just kind of give you an overview of the text that we're going to zero in on. In chapter 5 is a genealogy. Now, I know you are excited to study genealogies. Isn't that exciting? I know you're excited. Look, y'all are all still not paying attention yet, or you'd be going, what are you talking about? We're studying a genealogy in chapter 5, and sometimes it's challenging when you get to the text and you see a genealogy. Hopefully, you see today an example of how to uh, study a genealogy. But after chapter 5, you see uh, Noah and the flood narratives. Well, after the flood narratives, you get to chapter 10, there's more genealogy, and then you get to chapter 11, which is the Tower of Babel. And so what you have in this section of Scripture between uh, chapter 5 and chapter 10, if you will, is really one big genealogy going from Adam to the population of the earth, but it's interrupted with the flood narrative. And and that's the way when you're reading it, you get through this genealogy and then it just stops and we're going to see what is the Lord trying to teach us in these texts. And what we're going to see is the genealogy tells us that the sin of Adam has been passed down generation after generation. And then we're going to see Enoch stands as a glaring exception to that rule. And then we see the generation after generation continued. And then we get to Noah, another exception to that rule. And then we see after Noah, the generations continue to populate the earth. And so what we're going to see in our text today is Enoch and Noah are these bright diamonds of hope, shining bright in a very dark age. What we see in the text is life is dark. Life is broken. There's nothing but death and despair and destruction being passed down generation after generation. And we connect with that. We know our relationships are broken. We know our bodies are broken. Mentally, we have brokenness. Emotionally, we have brokenness. Spiritually, we have brokenness. We see physical death and despair and destruction going on, chaos all around us. That's the the feel of the scene of these chapters. Paul says the wages of sin is death. And that's not just physical death, that's spiritual death, mental, emotional, relational. In so many ways, brokenness comes because of sin. And so we we cry out in our hearts, where is the hope? Where is the good news in all of this brokenness? 
And that's what we're going to see in this text. We see two beautiful lights of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ are going to be seen in these next verses. And we're going to look at Enoch and Noah and ask God to give us hope in the midst of our brokenness. Father, would you be with us this morning as we work through these texts? Lord, I pray that you would teach us how to defeat death, teach us how to find hope and healing and eternal life in the midst of death and destruction and despair. Lord, I pray you do this. Give us faith this morning in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, well, let's begin by working through Genesis 5, this long genealogy. I'm not going to read it all, but let me just begin to read some of it, and then we're going to look at how this pattern develops and what the Lord is trying to show us. Look at 5 verse 1. It says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he named them man when they were created. Now let me stop there for a second. What's the author doing? What comes to mind when you read Genesis 5:1 when God created man? Where does your brain go? What text does your brain go to? Genesis 1 and 2. When we just studied this, God created man. And notice the scene. Notice the feel. What is this scene? This is we should be very familiar with this scene in our church. This is someone just was born. This is the hospital scene. This is a celebration of a father having a child in his own image. He names the child and he blesses the child. And so the author brings to our mind Genesis 1 and 2 and the picture of this good, loving father who is naming his children and blessing his children. God is the father of all generations And before we get into this dark scene, the author reminds us of his goodness and his grace and his blessings on his children. And then the genealogy begins in verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Adam that Adam lived were 930 years, and then he died. When Seth lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived, after he fathered Enosh, 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And so what we're going to see, if you kept reading, would be you're going to see a pattern of death. You're going to see this refrain repeated over and over. Adam has Seth, and then Adam dies. Seth has a son, and then Seth has Enosh, and then Seth dies. Enosh has Kenan, and then Enosh dies. Kenan has Mahalalel, and then Kenan dies. Mahalalel has Jared, and then Mahalalel dies. Jared has Enoch, and then Jared dies. Then Enoch has Methuselah, and then Enoch dies. Right? Oh, that's not what happens. So you are good readers of the Bible. That's exactly the point of the text. Each generation, the author only mentions one name. Because we already know that first generation, Adam and Eve had, who was the first child that was born to them? Who was Adam and Eve's first child? 
Cain. And what did Cain do? Cain killed Abel. And then God gave them another child named Seth. And so here it says Adam had Seth, Seth had Enosh. And so what we see is every person mentioned is only a representative head for that generation. And so they are the men of renown or the men of name or the representative head of that generation. And so we see this generational death is being passed. Adam died, Seth died, Enosh died. Every generation is just passing down death after death after death after death. And then this glaring hope, this beacon of light shines and you go, wait a minute. It didn't say that Enoch died. And so as readers, we go, what happened to Enoch? What exactly does he say happened to Enoch? Look at chapter 5, verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Verse 22, Enoch walked with God after he had fathered Methuselah. 300 years. And had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and you'd expect him to say Enoch died, but instead, in verse 24, it says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And you say, wait, that's not what has been going on generation after generation. It's been death, death, death. But then Enoch, it doesn't say die. And so... As a reader, I say, does that mean that Enoch didn't die? Do you think Enoch didn't die? Do you really think that Enoch did not die? And how do we know that? Because Hebrews 11.5 tells us that that's exactly what he meant in there. Because at first I was saying, okay, I know this is what I was taught, and it says, it doesn't say he died like everybody else. It says that he was taken, and I wonder, does that, is that just a different word for the same idea? And then I found that Hebrews 11.5, which says, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. You see, that's the way your Bible works. The New Testament and the Old Testament are not two separate unrelated books. The New Testament is a God-inspired commentary on the Old Testament. And they fit together as one book. And so God provides an inspired commentary that says, It was by faith that Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found. That tells me his friends were looking for him. Where in the world is Enoch? There's something different about this guy. And now no one can find him. And the Bible tells us that he was taken up because God had taken up, him up. Now listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11. 5. Now before he was taken up, he was commended as having pleased God. So as readers... We're reading through Genesis and we see paradise, glorious scene. And then we see sin enters the world. And then we see sin and it's death, the consequences of death. God told Adam, if you eat this, you will surely die. And then we see God's promises, God's word playing out. Just like he said, generation after generation, death after death after death. But Enoch didn't die. 
What should you be asking in your mind as a good reader of the Bible when it says Enoch didn't die? You should ask what? Why didn't he die? How did he not die? This is crazy. How does someone not experience death? I know your other question is, did he pay taxes? Because those are the two things we think we can't escape. Death and taxes. I bet they got their money. But he didn't die. And so our question is, how did Enoch escape death? Hold on to that thought for a moment. This, let's continue through the genealogy. After Enoch, we see the pattern of death again, tracing from Methuselah who had Lamech, and then Methuselah died, it says. Lamech had Noah, and then Lamech died. And so we would expect Noah had his three sons, and then Noah died, but that's not what it does. Instead, we say Noah, and then everything stops. And there's this long four-chapter pause, and the way it's written changes. It goes from these broad generational strokes of we're fast forwarding man we're going generation after generation 900 years just skip just like that 912 years skip like that generation after generation after we get to know and it's like pump the brakes everything stops and comes to a screeching halt for four chapters before we get to the generations again that lead from Noah and following. And then in verse chapter 5, verse 28, here's what it says to, to pick up where we are. 528, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered his son. Verse 29, 529, and God called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed. Now, where does your brain go right there? That's right, the fall. Out of the ground that the Lord had cursed, generation, uh, Genesis 3, this one shall bring us relief or rest. Noah's name in Hebrew means rest. It sounds like the word rest in Hebrew, and that's the way Hebrew often works. From our work. He, so, so in the midst of this, we see Enoch didn't die, and that die, and now we get to Noah, and it says, Noah will bring us rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. That's the curse language. That's from Genesis 3. After they sinned, the Lord comes to them and says, Because you have sinned, cursed is the ground, and from the sweat of your face you will toil and pain at childbirth. And so what the author is doing is showing you the spreading generation after generation of the curse of sin. You shall die and it will be painful because of your sin. And that is passed down generation after generation. Death is spreading from generation to generation. But Enoch is the exception to death. And now Noah is the exception. He will bring rest in the midst of this sinful spread across humanity. In chapter 6, we see sin spreading throughout humanity. In chapter 6, the Lord tells us how wicked and evil the world has become. In 6.5, it says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every, listen to how it's worded, that every intention of man was great, excuse me, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, you can't be more extreme. Every single intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
The author is making it clear. What God warned is happening. That with Adam's sin comes death, comes destruction, comes pain, comes toil, comes unraveling of all God's blessings. Makes me think of a movie I haven't actually seen, but I saw just enough to be disturbed, just enough to say I will never watch that movie, and it's The Purge. The Purge, I think, if I'm getting it right, is a movie about an overpopulated earth, and they need to get rid of some people, and their solution is to just have a, a season of lawlessness where no one will be held accountable for their behavior. And so... Everyone lets their evil desires run free, and it is, it is awful. They're killing and destroying because the law is not restraining their behavior. That's what's going on here. That's the scene that is pictured here. In chapter 6, it talks about the men of renown, or renown the men of knowledge, or the men of, the men of name. And there's some weird stuff about God's, son of God's came and, and married son of, of, of women or women. And it, it's not, I don't think it's anything weird. I think these are the rulers of the earth and they are fully wicked people and they are not restraining wickedness with legal systems. They are just as wicked and the earth is corrupt and it is awful. And it is, it is like the purge. It is just lawlessness and evil and wickedness. It's a picture of unrestrained evil. That if God does not do something, we will destroy ourselves. It's a very, very dark, wicked, evil time in our text and on the earth. Then against that dark backdrop, there's these two rays of light. Two hopes, Enoch and Noah. And what does it say about them? We already saw what it said about Enoch, but Enoch walked with God. What does it say about Noah? Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. So in the midst of all these sinful, wicked people where every single thought of their mind was only evil continually, Noah was a righteous man. Noah was blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. What does that lead you to question? What does that lead you? If Noah walked with God and Enoch walked with God and in their walking with God, the things that are said about them, uh, they escaped death. They are declared righteous. They are considered blameless in God's eyes. That's what is said about them. And it said that they walked with God. What is the very next question in your mind? What is it? Tell me, what is it? If Noah 
walked with God and Noah was blameless. If Enoch walked with God and Enoch escaped death, what is the question? How do I walk with God? What does it mean to walk with God? What does it look like to walk with God? If I'm living in the midst of death and sin and destruction, surely I could want to ask that question. And that's the question of the text. The question of the text is not, what was that Nephilim thing? The question of the text is, what does it mean to walk with God? What does it look like to walk with God? How can I escape death? How can I escape the coming judgment? How can I escape the consequences of sin, which I see running rampant on the pages of these scriptures? And that's what we're going to look at. With Enoch and with Noah, what we see is our main point is this. Life in the midst of death is found by walking with God. Life in all sense of the word, meaning and purpose and wholeness, life and yes, physical life that extends beyond the grave. Life in the midst of death is found by what? Walking with God. God. You're going to talk about this week in your community group. Where is life found? How do you find life in the midst of death? The answer is, everyone in the group will say, walking with God. And then the leader's going to say, what does it mean to walk with God? And he's going to say, let's think about that in Genesis 1 and 2. Why are we asking about Genesis 1 and 2? Because the text has led us to 1 and 2. And what we see is in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve walked with God. Adam and Eve are walking with God. And it's this paradise, this beautiful scene. And what did we learn in our study of Genesis 1 and 2? What does walking with God look like? What did it comprehend or what what did it include? It was Adam and Eve in the presence of God. And who is God? He's the creator. The whole scene has been showing that God spoke powerfully and created. He spoke it into existence. And he's this good, sovereign, loving God. He is the one, if you'll remember in our study, seeing what is good and providing what is good and declaring what is good. He is God. He is good. He is providing all that they need. And he is making a way for them to be in his presence. And he has a good purpose for their life. He has a meaning for them. All of life and all the comprehensive sense of the word is in God and access to the tree of life sustaining their life is right there in God's presence. And he tells them to do one simple thing. Do you remember what it is? Don't eat of what? The tree of knowledge of good and evil. I'm going to coin that the trust tree. the, The trust me tree. God is saying, trust that I know good and evil. God is saying, trust that I 
am your provider. Trust that I am keeping you only from evil and death and shame and guilt and division and despair and destruction and all that you see playing out in chapters four and five and six. God says, I'm keeping you from that. I'm protecting you. Just trust me. And if you trust me, then you will obey me when I say, don't eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so we saw that to walk with God is to walk in a loving, trusting relationship with God that is, that is evidenced by obedience. That's what it means to walk with God. And that's what we see Adam and Eve doing. And when they chose not to, and they refused, and they sinned, and they rebelled, literally all hell broke loose. And we see it playing out. And so when we ask the question, what does it mean to walk with God such a way that we can escape the, the death that is due because of sin? When, what does it mean? We see in Adam and Eve, it means to be in a trusting, obedient relationship with God. And what we need to understand is, let's stop and think about the time of things. This is thousands of years before Moses and the law. And so it doesn't mean do some religious duty to please God. It doesn't mean bring a sacrifice according to some legalistic requirement to make God happy. And if I just do it, follow some formula, God will accept me. It doesn't mean keep a list of rules of do's and don'ts and that will earn myself a position with God. It, it, those aren't even in place yet. But what we see is them living in a loving, trusting relationship with God is more like this father-child relationship. A child who trusts that their father is a good, loving father and that their father is providing direction and caring for them. And as a result, they are in a relationship, a covenant relationship with that good, loving father that fleshes out as obedience. And that's what it means to walk with God. It means to be in a trusting relationship with God. The Bible calls it in the New Testament, the word that's often used is faith. But I would like to clarify what faith means because too many times in our culture, we think that just means a mental, kind of like the right brain, mental assent to a set of facts or doctrine. It's not less than that. We sing songs about what we believe, but what that should be rightly understood is that's an expression of who our God is and how we love and trust him. And we're in that trusting relationship with the God who is three in one, the God who loves us and died for us. But it's not just a mere acceptance of a doctrinal statement of faith and then do some religious performance or duty and God finds you acceptable. Instead, it's more like a child-father-child-parent relationship that's in a loving, trusting relationship, and that produces and bears out the fruit of obedience. I obey because I'm in a loving, trusting relationship with my father. So we get through this genealogy of death. Enoch says, it says, Enoch walked with God, and he did not die. 
And so we say to walk with God, what did that mean? We don't get to see much about Enoch, but we know from the text before it meant to be in a loving, trusting relationship. And so at this point, we should know what to look for as we read the flood narratives. What are we looking for as we read the flood narratives? We're asking the question, what does it look like to walk with God? And so I'm reading the flood narratives. What did it look like for Noah to walk with God? And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to pull out three characteristics from Noah's life of what it looked like for Noah to walk with God. So when you get to the flood narratives in chapter 6, you're reading, it says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and you stop everything and you miss the whole point of Noah. What in the world is this flyer, this flyer, this distractor about Nephilim? I will just tell you very simply, these are, my opinion, these are men of renown who were ruling the day and it was a continuation of the genealogy. It's running, wickedness is running wild. So just put that at ease and out of your mind and then continue in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then what does God say to him? In chapter 6, verse 11, God commands Noah to build the ark. And if you notice the language, what does it do? It gets extraordinarily detailed. Why does God give us the details of the dimensions of part of the ark? Is it because God says, now I want you to go build this in your backyard? No. What is God showing you about Noah's walk with God? He's showing you Noah obeyed to the very last detail. Noah carefully obeyed every detail. His he was focused on obeying exactly what God said. It wasn't pick and choose. Let me tell you something. If a flood's coming and you got to build a boat, you don't halfway build the boat. You don't just kind of build the boat. You make sure it is airtight, that it will float. And that's what we see. Clearly, one aspect of Noah's walking with God is careful obedience to every detail of God's command. His desire is to carefully obey every word that God says. And we need to take that to our own lives. To walk with God includes a desire to carefully obey every detail of God's word. Again, not because that merits righteousness with God, but because we trust God. Because we believe God, because we know God. We know his word is true and powerful and has life in it. And so if we know that, then we will carefully obey it. So that's another aspect of what it means to to walk with God. In fact, throughout the, the flood narratives, what we see is it's very cumbersome language. What I mean by that is the the writer is like not trying to be smooth. He says Something's going to happen, and then it happens, and he says it happened, then he says it happens again, and he keeps fumbling over himself. But you know what he's doing in that? He keeps repeating a certain phrase over and over. And we see it repeated over and over, and we see it in verse 7, 5. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. That's all over the place. That's the point of the narrative. 
God said, and Noah did it. He says, God's going to say this, and Noah's going to do it. God said it, and Noah did it. And did I tell you that God said this, and Noah did that? And then God said this, and Noah did that. That's the way it's written. It's like, wait, what? How many times did he tell him to go in the ark? He told him to go in. I'm going to tell you to go in. He's going to go in when I tell him to go in. And then I'm going to tell him to go in. Now, go in. And he went in. That's the way it's written. It's like, okay. He did exactly what the Lord told him to do. Now, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, there's a word of warning. It's the first mention of this. He tells Noah something's going to happen in seven days. He says it's going to rain in seven days. Now, this is another aspect of what it means to walk with God. It means to believe God's word. He said, it's going to rain in seven days. Now, Noah looks around. There's nothing to tell him that's true. Why would he believe that? Except that he knows God. He knows his trustworthiness. And so when God says it, he believes it. And so another aspect of what it means to walk with God from the life of Noah is that we, can, that we must believe God's word. And let me be a little more specific in light of the context Believe God's word concerning the coming day of judgment. Because the rain that's coming is God's judgment on the earth because of the rampant sin. And so in the text, we see God warning there's judgment coming. Now, if Noah doesn't believe God's word, Noah just goes to the next wedding feast. The Bible tells us that during this time, people were marrying and giving in marriage and life was good and everybody's living the dream. And God said, judgment's coming. And Noah had a choice. Do I believe what God says about the coming judgment? If I do, I do what God says and I build the boat. Do you believe what God has said. Judgment is coming. We're marrying and we're giving in marriage and we're going to weddings and we're having a party and all seems good. And all the while God has said, now judgment is coming. To walk with God means to carefully obey God and it means to believe what he says. And he says, judgment is coming. So what did Noah do? Verse 7, 5. And Noah did all the Lord God commanded him. Noah obeyed God. He built the ark in every last detail. And then we see this relationship, this play back and forth between God and Noah. God says, Noah believed. God says, do this. Noah obeys. And we see in verse 10, after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth, just like God said. God calls it to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And in case we missed it the first two times, the author tells us again in verse 13 that He obeyed God. He entered the ark. And if that isn't enough, he tells us one more time in verse 16. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And what did the Lord do? The Lord shut him in. 
The Lord sealed him in for salvation. The Lord protects him from the coming wrath that is flooding in. Noah trusted God. He believed what God said about the coming judgment, so he obeyed what God said to do to escape the coming judgment. Noah did exactly as the Lord commanded him, and God does exactly what God says he would do. God sends the judgment, and God saves Noah and his family from the judgment. God and Noah are in a relationship God saves Noah. Noah walks with God. I didn't think about this till this morning. As I said this, I don't know if you've ever walked through burying someone you love, but if you have, and you'll be surprised to find that they tell you to put in four words what you want to put on their gravestone. Four words? We came up with, for my mother this last summer, well done, faithful servant. I like that. But I think maybe, maybe what I want on mine is Tracy walked with God. Can that be said about us? He walked with God. She walked with God. To walk with God is to escape death. To walk with God is to escape the coming judgment. What does it mean to walk with God? It means to trust God in a loving, trusting relationship with God in such a way that you obey God. And we see in Noah every detail that your heart is to obey, every detail of what God says, not just partially, but you want to obey this awesome God who is saving you. It also means believing his word that what he says is true, especially about the coming flood of his judgment on sin. And finally, the last thing we see is it means to wait patiently and watch carefully for the Lord's impending deliverance. To wait patiently and watch carefully for the Lord's coming deliverance. I get that in the second part of, seven, uh, of verse 7 excuse me, chapter 7 all the way into chapter 8. And in verses 17 through 24, the waters of judgment come, they rise, and oh, it's painfully slow. It's painfully slow. I mean, it goes from crossing thousands and thousands and thousands of years of generations, and then it comes to the screeching halt, the waters rise, and you're inside the ark with Noah and his family, and outside is this chaos and death and destruction such that it says every nostril that had breath was destroyed and the waters rise and they rise and it rains and it rains and Noah's just in there waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and then it stops raining and you're like oh good it's over oh no it's just started 
It's waiting and waiting and waiting. And then finally, he sends out the dove. Oh no, I forgot. He sent a raven out first. And it's waiting and waiting until they come. Is it over? Can I go out? Is the judgment over? I'm waiting. And you're in there with Noah, waiting on the Lord. And you got to think, if you, if you add up the time periods that are mentioned, the time markers, he's in the ark for a solid year. 12 months, 365 days with stinking animals and your in-laws. I didn't say which is worse or better. He's in there for a year. Waiting. What do you think he's thinking? I can ask this text. It's a leading. I can ask that question. It's a leading question because it's in the text. It's answered. I'm wondering. He's thinking. Has God forgotten me? Has he forgotten about me? Eight, verse one. What does it say? God remembered Noah. God remembers Noah. God remembers his people. Of course he does. The whole account has been, he wants to walk with you. He loves you. He wants to put his arm around you and walk with you all throughout your day. Know every detail of your life. Know your hurts, your sorrows, your fears, your joys. He wants to help you. He wants to be in your life. Of course he remembers you. God remembered Noah. The rain stopped. God remembered Noah. Noah waited for God to open the doors. He had to wait a really long time. But as Noah waited, he was actively watching and searching for signs of the impending deliverance of God. He's sending out birds. Is it time? He's looking out the window. Is it time? He's not asleep. He's actively watching and waiting for the impending deliverance of God. That's what it means to walk with God. Are you actively watching, patiently waiting for God's final deliverance? And in 8.15, we see Noah's deliverance finally comes. The narrative ends with one last command and one last act of obedience by Noah. In 8.15, we read, Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Okay, no problem. I'm out. Verse 18, So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. God delivered Noah. Enoch and Noah point us to Jesus. Do you see how every bit of this narrative is the gospel? Paul tells us the wages of sin is death. Through death came, through sin comes death. All have sinned, so all will die. That's the picture that we see. Enoch says you can escape 
the penalty of death by walking with God. Noah says the coming judgment on sin, you can be spared by walking with God. In 1 Corinthians 15, 21, Paul says this, For as by a man came death, Adam, just as one man brought death, by a man has also come the resurrection from the dead, Jesus. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive who are in Christ. So you see what the the Bible does. Every story whispers the name of Jesus. The point of every story is believe in Jesus. Noah's not the hero of the story. Enoch is not the hero of the story. God, through Jesus Christ, is the hero of the story. Jesus is the ark of our salvation. Jesus is the Noah who is the perfect, obedient son who built the ark that we might enter by faith and be saved from the coming wrath of God that we deserve for our sin. Jesus rose from the grave. He's the Enoch who defeated death. And by faith, we are united to him and we have life after death. In 1 Corinthians 15, 23, Paul continues to explain. He says the resurrection comes each in its own order. This is the order of the resurrection. This is how it plays out. This is God's word to you. Do you believe what God is saying? He says, Christ was the first fruits. He resurrected first from the dead. Then at his coming, this is the future, we're in the ark, there's protection, and there's outside the ark. He says, then when he comes again, those who belong to Christ will be resurrected Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That time, the last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. You say, how did we beat death? I see people dying all the time. It hasn't been accomplished yet. It hasn't been finished yet. But his resurrection from the grave is the hope, the evidence, the confidence that we have that we too who are in Christ by faith will resurrect from the grave. The word of God is warning you today. Death and judgment is coming. Tracy, do you believe that word? And it promises you, you can be resurrected from the grave if you'll place your hope in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe that word? Are you walking with God? Father God, I pray that during this song, as we sing this final song expressing the words of our heart, the the thoughts of our heart, I pray you'll give faith to every person in this room to believe your word, to see your goodness, your trustworthiness, and to escape death and the wrath of God by putting their faith in you and specifically in your son, Jesus, who was the first and only to resurrect from the grave. Lord, thank you for saving us through Jesus. Thank you for warning us of the coming wrath. Thank you for delivering us 
sealing us in the ark in the midst of death, destruction, and despair. And may our faith be strengthened this morning to trust in you, to trust that you will resurrect us from the grave on that day when you finished judging your enemies. All to your great glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.